Well, good morning. It's so good to have you with us this morning. For those of you visiting, you're our guests. It's a delight to have you in the building. Thank you again. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. While you're getting there, I want to give you an incentive to stay focused on the sermon this morning. For everybody who listens, pays attention, and we can tell is engaged with the text, <clears throat> we'll let you have some ice cream after the service. That's how that, that's how that works, okay? We've got treats, and we have enough. If you're just joining us, we are continuing our study on Nehemiah. It's this sense of restoration, rebuilding, restoring what was. My wife and I have prayed at different times and different seasons for different people, even ourselves, and we prayed sometimes for revival. Maybe you've prayed for that as well. Lord, we'd love to see a revival, a revival of biblical preaching and biblical worship and We'd love to see a revival of, of people, young people, old people, all ages and stages from all socioeconomic backgrounds lit up for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We'd love to see that. Sometimes it's right to pray for revival. Sometimes you have to pray for transformation because there's some folks who have gotten really good at playing church and there's nothing to revive. They are just good at playing church and they need to be transformed by the power of God. Nehemiah is encountering both of those things as he's moving back into Jerusalem. He's now the governor. We discover that in chapter 5. It's already happened, but we discover his title in chapter 5. Last week, we talked about the threats outside the camp. Give me just a moment to get you into the text this morning. Last week, the escalating threats outside the, the camp. Now, Sanballat was a troll. That's the Greek word for what he was. I mean, not really, but... But he was a troll. That's exactly what he was. Today that term refers to somebody who intentionally makes inflammatory or rude statements, upsetting statements online. And um, they're doing it to get strong emotional reactions to what they're saying. Some people do it to steer conversations off topic. Uh, more often than not, they try to do it for a specific political agenda. Shocker, right? Well, that's where Sanballat was. He was trying to not only upset emotionally, distract, distort, but to get the people totally off their game. He intended harm both to Nehemiah and to God's people and God's work, but Nehemiah responded. We saw those four escalations, and he responded in prayer and then a strategic response that matched the threat. Nehemiah met each threat and stayed on mission and stayed on message. We wind up in chapter 4 with the people of God actively keeping watch. They're actively engaged in getting the work done. Many are holding a weapon in one hand and construction tools in the other. Uh, we've got some contractors in the room this morning. I don't know what it would be like. By the way, the statement I'm about to make, I read this in a commentary. So I'm gonna, if you don't like it, I can point you to them. You can send them a letter, okay? But it's like imagine pulling up to a construction site and everybody on the construction site having their tool that they're doing, like behind us at one to each, with, with an AR in one hand and, and their tool in the other. I, I think that slows down the construction process. I'm just, it's just a hunch. Uh, it would certainly be unsettling to see. Well, that's where they were, to deal with the threats on the outside. And, and I want to remind you, as children of God on this side, I don't want to get too far into application. We touched it last week. But remember, 
we've been given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's not to bludgeon people about the headwind. It's to divide our soul and spirit so we might be nourished by the King of glory and live in such a way that others are drawn to the hope they see in us to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The people are working in chapter 4, and if you read in chapter 4, you notice there was a hint of discouragement that popped up in the middle. We didn't even get to deal with that last week. That's a tactic of the enemy. He still uses it today. Paul would write, we're not ignorant of his devices. One of his devices is distraction and discouragement and deception. Why is he doing that? Because he wants to divide God's people. A house divided cannot stand. A divided people will not work, and a divided family is not a joyful family. This morning, as Brother Mark read the text and read verse 1, let's put verse 1 on the screen and look at it. I wonder where your mind went when you read, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now, just in observation, our first tool in biblical study, remember we spend a lot of times just seeing what's there. We observe before we interpret, before we apply. We just observe the text. And so as we're observing the text, just my mind was flooded with a few instances similar to this. My mind went back to Exodus when God called Moses on the backside of the desert in Exodus 3 and says, there's a great outcry. The cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I've seen their oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. This kind of outcry is attached to oppression. And it's a, it's a crying out. It's the, actually the same word, the same Greek word. New Testament example, not quite as dramatic. Nobody's screaming and hollering, but remember in Acts, where the Hellenists come up, like the church is starting to grow, the church at Jerusalem, and somebody says, wait a minute, our widows aren't being cared for like their widows. And it was a legitimate complaint. There was a little bit of division starting to show up, and it was being distorted. A complaint by the Hellenists in Acts 6-1 that some were being neglected. This one wasn't an outcry. It was grumbling, but it could have resulted in division, but the people of God met it beautifully. Warren Wearsby, easy for me to say, uh, has a quote that I think is appropriate. He says, when the enemy fails in his attacks from the outside... He then begins attacks from within, and one of his favorite weapons is selfishness. We've entitled the message this morning, Dealing with Selfishness, because that's what Nehemiah's got to deal with in chapter 5. It's really in two parts. We see that selfishness brings division, and we see selflessness brings unity. Hang with me as we work the text together selfish oppression if you're taking notes this morning there are really two main headers selfish oppression divides you could say selfishness always divides you can word that how you want to but selfish and division those are the two words you got to grab there okay Nehemiah uncovers selfishness when the people and their wives cry out against their fellow Jews they're not crying out against Sanballat the troll They're not crying out against Tobiah and the posse. They're not crying out against the boys, the Arabs, the Ammonites, or the Ashdodites. 
It's the same people group. It's the family of God. They're crying out again. It's the people that are supposed to be on the same team, heading the same direction. They're actually working against each other. Houston, we have a problem. We have a problem. Unfortunately, it's not a foreign problem in a lot of churches today, is it? We hear of division, and if division goes unchecked, we usually then hear of destruction. Nehemiah uncovers the selfishness. Let me go back through what um, Brother Mark read. I'm not going to reread those texts, but look in your Bible as I'm giving you these summary statements. In verse 2, there were people who were going hungry, who were working, by the way, but they didn't own any land to farm. In verse 3, there are people who own land but had to mortgage it to pay uh, for food. In verse 4, there were people who owned land but were so strapped financially, they were forced to borrow money to pay their taxes. In verse 5, and here's where what sets Nehemiah off. Verse 5, wealthy Jewish leaders loaned their kinsmen money. They charged them interest. That's a no-no, by the way. Not supposed to do that. They were under the Torah law, and they were not supposed to loan people uh, in the Jewish community money and charge them interest. Big no-no. No, 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 no. But they charged them interest and too much interest, And then, as collateral, they took their land and their children. So you can say, well, they didn't know about the interest. Uh, Well, I'm not sure I'll agree with you on that, but but everybody knows you don't take people's kids as collateral on a loan. Now, I don't know how strapped you are. Now, some of you may be signing up for this. I don't know. We'll do a parenting class if that's the case. But I don't know how strapped you are, but that's bad. Listen, that, that is bad. I don't want to make light of the financial strain that we're under right now as a nation, but let's not kid ourselves. We don't know this kind of need and poverty. Most of us in the room have never known this kind of need and poverty. I mean, yeah, we're sitting there pumping gas into our really nice vehicles and we're complaining about the price of, you know, yeah, this is expensive, while we're checking our European vacation because the euro's down because we can get there cheap. And tell our friends, can you believe how cheap it is to fly to Europe? Gas is 20 cents more, right? I don't know that we get to say, yeah, financial strain, right? I, I don't want to make light of the strain that it really is on so many, but, but this is something else. This is a different category. People are willingly having to submit to things because they have no other option. Nehemiah is discovering the need, but he's also discovering the greed among his own people. The Jewish people of wealth are primarily concerned with their own ease and they're taking no thought for how it's impacting others. Selfishness provokes the leader. We finished on a weird verse to finish on. I know, but it was by design. Verse six, he's so mad. Look at what it says. Verse six, I was angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Mark, Brother Mark, I've had you read some interesting passages from time to time. It's just dawning on me, and I've had him in. Sometimes they end on these awkward little statements, but it's something to go to church and be the scripture reader that morning. And what'd you read? Something about being angry. Pastor had me in on something being angry. There you go. Look at verse 7. I took counsel with myself. That comma is an unfair comma in the translation. But it says, I took counsel with myself, and then... I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I want to pause there before we get to him confronting those people and just show you how practical Old Testament teaching is. 
how practical Old Testament teaching is. Some of you were tempted to say, well, that's Old Testament. There's such a big gulf between the time and understanding. There's such a big gulf between the time and the language, and that's a different covenant and all these things. Right. That's where we take our time and we slow down and we look to see what's there because I'm going to tell you something. I don't know. Has anybody in the room, show of hands, I rarely ask for this, show of hands, anybody in the room dealt with anger this week? No one? For those of you watching online, you probably can't see, but hundreds of hands just went up all up. Not hundreds, I'm being silly. Most of us get confronted with anger on a somewhat regular basis. Let me tell you about the word here that's used for this type of anger. And then I'll just bring out a couple things. Quick little lesson here nestled in the text. The word for angry is this word. Now, you have to say it this way because it's awesome. It just fits. Hurrah. That, that's how it's pronounced. Like that's, if you saw, how you doing today? And I went, Hurrah. you'd go, oh, <laughs> okay. Pray for the pastor, right? That's, and that's the word. It's, it's the pronunciation phonetically is like H-R-H. It's hurrah. It's this weird kind of, you'd hear it on a wrestling. You hear it sometimes with tennis players, you know, kind of hitting the, missing the shot. It, it, the word means becoming hot. Like the temperature is rising of the individual. They're becoming excitably angry. I will not ask for a show of hands to see if your anger this week was hurrah. Okay. Because the person you're angry at might be sitting next to you. This is a different kind of anger. And, and, and Nehemiah recognizes it as such. And then that phrase shows up in verse 7. I, if you don't have that underlined in your Bible, I would. It says, I took counsel with myself. I took counsel with myself. Uh, since we're doing uh, word, fun things with words, that one doesn't, is not as uh, profound. It's malach is the word, but it sound, almost sounds Klingon. It's not. It's actually, that's the Hebrew way you say it. But he takes counsel with himself. It means that he debates himself. He has a conversation with himself. Have you ever done that? You, you talk to yourself? We as Christians should always bring every thought, the Bible says, captive to the knowledge of Christ. Now, this is before Christ in a covenant sense, on an earthly sense. So Nehemiah knows the truth, and he's taking his emotions to task with the truth. I I talked to um, one of our therapists this week who is in the congregation, and before some of you say you should do that more often, Um, I asked the question, I presented the text to her, and I said, here's the text, I have a question. I know that every situation and every person is unique, and they come for their own unique set of circumstances, which she affirmed, And, and I said, but what advice do you find yourself giving the most often when you're trying to help people work through their anger? Now, just, we don't do a lot of Q&A here, but what do you think is, it's just some practical advice when you're angry, when you're kind of, when you're that kind of anger? What do you think? a therapist might tell you to do first. Just talk to me this morning. What's that? Breathe. I heard that. You know, it's one of the first things she said. Breathe. Breathe. First of all, let's take a step back and recognize it's okay to feel, period. It's okay to feel. God wired us with emotions. It's okay to feel emotions. It's okay to be angry. It is. The scripture talks about that. It says that there's a danger with anger. We've got to be very careful with anger. But but, but we can be angry and then not act in sin, right? 
There's a distance between the anger and the act. God can hold that anger for you. I thought that was good. You're not giving a, a mountain size of anger to a feeble God. You're, you're giving this anger, whatever it is, whether it's, I'm a little ticked off, right? Or whether it's, whatever it is, you're giving it to the God that made the universe. He can take it. He can handle it. You, you can place that anger in God's hands. It's what we choose to do with our anger that either hurts people, makes the situation works, causes more anger, hello, or helps us to act in a responsible way. Take deep breaths, then act responsibly. Context is key. Before I get back to the passage, let me just tell you. Nehemiah put some distance between his anger and his act. Can that help anybody this morning? Boy, it was a big help to me. Put some distance between your anger and the act. He took counsel in himself. This self-counsel, he confronted his emotions with truth. It's great guidance for all of us. Nehemiah's not ticked off, though, because somebody cut him off in traffic. He's not ticked off because something didn't go his way or the market's down. His blood is boiling because he has discovered that there is destruction brewing in the camp because of the selfishness of his own people. Do you know that Nehemiah doesn't record that he got angry when the enemy attacked from outside? He never wrote, I was angry when Sanballat said these things. We expect the, like, you expect people that hate God to hate the church, right? I mean, or is that, is that like newsflash? Like, people that, that hate Jesus and hate the Bible and hate the church, they, they do hateful things sometimes. That, that's to be expected. But when people within the family act like people outside the family, there's a reason for a leader, a godly leader, to get angry. Nehemiah gets angry, but he slows down before he acts. The psalmist said, be angry and don't sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Proverbs 29.11 says, a fool gives vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Now, it's not just that he's angry at any group of people. He's angry at the most influential, wealthiest decision makers, like in culture and society. That, that's the target of what needs to be addressed, and he's got to address them. He couldn't really talk this out with any of his leaders. He's got to fix this in his own heart and then get ready, and he does. Let's look back at verses 7 and 8. I took counsel within myself. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you, you sell even your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. What's he saying? He's like, you're undoing the good we're trying to do. <laughs> That's what selfishness does, by the way. You're not only breaking God's law, you're doing it at the expense of our own people. This is not how family treats one another. This is not how we follow God together on God's mission. They were silent. The truth stopped their mouths. It laid their actions bare for all to see. He continues, and in verse 9, I think he gets to the heart of the matter. Look in your text. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk 
in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Let's read on. I'm going to come back to that phrase. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. The phrase, Mark, if you'll throw verse 9 back up there, I'd be grateful. The phrase, ought you not to walk in the fear of God. He is calling them to repent, not because there's social injustice, not because it's a family matter, but because they are behaving in a way that shows they do not fear God. When we behave in selfish ways, we are broadcasting to others, we don't Fear God. And I don't mean like couched in an afraid kind of fear. I mean reverence, worship, and know that He's holy and demanding holiness in our own lives. He's calling them to fear God, to be more concerned with God's reputation than their ease. One writer writes this way He says, Walking in the fear of God means taking God seriously. And God is a just God. He doesn't do right merely because he's choosing to do right. He does it out of the nature of who he is. God is right, and he does right, and he calls us to follow him. If we know God, Grace Covenant Church, friends, covenant family members, guests first time, and repeat guests, if we claim to know God, if we are awestruck by the power of God, if we're walking in the Holy Spirit, forgiven and washed in the blood of the Lamb, asking God to give us the mind of Christ, then we, day by day, should be more and more selfless in our living, not selfish in our living. Well, since I'm there and the context fits let me press just a little bit more and then we'll we'll be pleasant in a moment do you think somebody would think we fear God in the way we deal with our money years ago John Piper wrote and called people to a wartime lifestyle he said in wartime we spend money differently there's austerity it's not for its own sake but because there are more strategic ways to spend money he writes, a $70,000 salary does not have to be accompanied by a $70,000 lifestyle. I know that's anti-American, what I just said, but that's true. No matter how grateful we are, this one stings a little bit, gold will not make the world think that our God is good. It will make people think that our God is gold. Let that linger for a bit. Now, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant or the laws of the Torah in that way. We're not under that part of the law. But we'd be wise to remember some guidance given to us from the Old Testament that's not undone in the New Testament. You want some? He's going to talk about tithing. He's not, actually. I promise. He's not. Here's some guidance that I think will bless you. Everything belongs to God. Everything. You're just stewards. That's not your stuff. Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Kindness to the poor honors God. 
in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's even said that when you give to the poor, it's like lending to God. Kindness to the poor honors God. The rich young ruler, here's New Testament, was told to sell everything he had. Some of your pulse has just gone up. Wait a minute. But Zacchaeus wasn't. Zacchaeus wasn't told to sell everything he had, even though he'd taken stuff by deceitful gain as a tax collector. He wasn't told to sell everything. He went and made things right. So, so you, can't, you can't take that hard, kind of legalistic line and lay it. What you can say, here's what we know. Everything belongs to God. Kindness to the poor honors God. Wise people work hard. They save money, and they prepare for times of want. That's a biblical principle. It's not bad to have a savings account or to make wise decisions about the future. But here's the mark of the people of God that honor God in Old and New Testament. You ready? Generous, faithful, and at times sacrificial, giving and living to the family of God is an act of worship. Old Testament and New. It's just a reflection of our hearts as they point to God. Nehemiah knows that the people who are awestruck by God, the people who are following the Lord in his ways, are generous people moving towards selflessness and away from selfishness. So then we transition to show how Nehemiah showed this in his own life. Here's your second header for the text this morning. Not as long as the first, but here it is. Selfless generosity unites. If selfish oppression divides the work and the body, selfless generosity unites. And it does. It absolutely does. In verse 8, Nehemiah indicated that he and some of the other leaders had personally underwritten redeeming Jewish slaves. In verse 10, you find that Nehemiah and his brothers were lending to those in need and they weren't charging interest. But, but he quickly, as he discovers the scope of the need, Nehemiah uh, sees that what, what the people need are not loans, they need gifts. Let's read, I'm just, it's just dawning on me, the Sunday I'm preaching this and what's happened in our news recently. I'm not making any political statements today, y'all know that. Let's read on and we'll come back to the people's response in just a moment. In verses 14 through 18, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. You say, oh, he ate like a pauper. Actually, no. He's going to show that he enjoyed abundance in a minute, but he didn't take advantage of the people when he didn't need to. That's the principle here. You ready? Verse 15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I didn't do that because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men. Who's hosting us all for uh, lunch today? Whose, whose house can we crash? There are 150 of us, but can you imagine 150 people you've got to feed on a regular basis that are all building a wall? Besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. 
Yet for all this, I didn't demand the food allowance from the governor, of the governor rather, because the service was too heavy on the people. What's happening? He's been governor for 12 years. He's not taking advantage of what he could take advantage of because he doesn't need it. He's living on a wartime uh, budget. He's living a wartime lifestyle. He was within his rights actually to add more taxes to the people. Every other governor had done that, but he refused to do it. And unlike many politicians then and now, he wasn't in this for his own gain. He loved God, and he loved the people of God, and he wanted to see them flourish. And the only way that would happen is if all of the people lived selflessly. You know what enables people to let go of what is entitled to them? It's not legalism. It's not guilt. Those don't work or last. Those don't produce fruit that honors God. No one has forced Nehemiah to do this. What gave him the freedom from being bound to privileges? He had found something far more satisfying. His life, as the New Testament would say, consisted of more than just the abundance of things. You know what it was? He found love. Love for God's people. Love for God. Faith in God. Love for the work of God. Nehemiah also believes that there's something higher and better and more enjoyable than indulging oneself in this world. He knew that he was honoring God by the way he was living. If you look at verse 19 in your Bible, I don't have it on the screen for you, but the very last verse, he affirms this. He says, God, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. That's not a selfish prayer. That's him saying, Lord, I've done this your way so that you got all the credit and glory. Be glorified in this. So it looks like I skipped around a little bit, but I made the case. Selfishness divides, selflessness unites. So how did the people respond after he confronted them? Well, if you glance at verses 12 and 13, they say, we're going to restore everything we took. We're not going to require any more from people. We're going to do as you say. In verse 13, as you move through 13, it says, They say amen and praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. I mean, every pastor that reads that passage has a little amen moment because they think, man, if everybody would just do what they said they would do, ah, it'd be amazing, right? And then we look in the mirror as pastors and say, man, if I would just do what I told them I would do, that would be amazing too, so... Nehemiah confronted them with the truth. He called them to fear God. He communicated the need. He compelled them to respond. He convened others as witnesses, and they feared God. You say, well, the text doesn't say they feared God. I think it does. It's implicit there. You know how I get it? You know why I know they feared God? Because they repented. You don't repent if you don't fear God, and you don't fear God if you haven't repented. We, we say... Oftentimes, David was good at sin, sinning, but he was better at repenting. He, he was a man after God's heart. They stopped their selfishness. They turned toward unity. They moved away from selfishness and toward selflessness. This is an Old Testament passage, I think, illustrating the New Testament principle of what it looks like to be the body of Christ. We've got to be on guard for anything that would distract us, divide us, because if it's left unchecked, it will result in destruction. Not of God and his will or his kingdom, but of the covenant that we enjoy together and of the 
blessings that we have as a family. We've got to be on guard. Every week, we take a moment after the sermon. Every week, a moment before we transition to communion on first Sundays or the last song on every other Sunday. Every week, we do that. Why do we do that? To show off Julia's skills? She just went like that. We do appreciate you playing, Julia. You're a blessing to us. Every week, we do that. Why? To put some space between the call and the corporate act. To give you space as a child of God or someone longing to become a child of God to respond. Maybe it's repentance. Maybe it's worship. Whatever it is, it's a moment for you to reflect and respond appropriately. Today you've been confronted with the truth. Selfishness divides and selflessness unites. It was true in Nehemiah. It's true in the New Testament epistles. If you worship money, you need to fear God and repent and worship Him instead. If you worship your family more than you worship God, if you have anything else in the place of God in your life, you are out of the will of God for your life. You are missing the blessings of God on your life when you put things where they don't belong. One of my early pastors said to me one time, it's okay to have stuff as long as stuff doesn't have you. Confronted with the truth, we want to be selfless uniters in the body. That's what we need now. That's what the world needs now. As Julia steps over to the piano, we're just about to have a moment to respond. The only way for the work of God to be done in Nehemiah's day was for God's people to move away from selfishness. The only way for the work of God to be done today in a way that God gets all the credit is for God's people to move away from selfishness. I mean, treat it like it's a rash. Treat it like some of y'all did when they said us we had to shut down and couldn't get near somebody. You know, I heard a comedian say recently, well, I guess coughing in public is over with. Like if you ever start choking on water at a restaurant, you better just get up and leave. They're going to tase you and ask you to, you know, get out of the property, out of the county. That's how we need, we need to be allergic to selfishness. Like when it shows up in our life, we, go, mm, we need to have a reaction to that in our own lives. I do. I do. If we're going to do great commission work as a New Testament church that the Lord's called us to do, if we're going to do it as men and women and girls and boys and families, as individuals, as a church, if we're going to endeavor to tell our neighbors and the nations about a God that can make them new, then we need to behave in ways that look like we've been made new. Amen? Amen. Let's ask the Lord to move among us this morning and to move us on the pathway away from selfishness toward selflessness. Remember Christ himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for this day and for your word. We ask that you would do a deep work in us. Lord, we recognize that if our hearts were more content in you, we'd be less inclined to be angry at so many things. Lord, if our hearts were more content in you, we'd be less inclined to be selfish so easily. Take us today from our self-righteousness, our ego-driven demands from life and others. Overthrow the tyranny of anger and selfishness in our own hearts, O Lord. And in its place, would you put a clear vision of your throne, your kingdom, your peace, and your son as you rule and reign supreme in our lives. We bless you in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen.